The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Good evening, everyone here, and good evening, everyone there. Um, this is uh, this is a bunch of firsts for me, in a sense. This is, um, <clears throat> well, this is the first time I'm giving a Dharma talk period in quite a long time because uh, I had a very <clears throat> intense teaching schedule at the school where I teach this year and I, I wasn't ab- ever able to, to be here on a Thursday evening or on a Sunday morning. So it's been about a year since I've given a talk, period. This is also the first time, I don't know, in about three years since I've given a talk in person because of COVID. So. All the talks I've given in the past three years have all been on Zoom. Um, and it's also my first time giving a talk in our new space. We're in a new uh, Zendo <coughs> for about a year. And it is also my first time giving a talk wearing this colorful thing. That feels weird. <coughs> um, but uh, as I was beginning to prepare for this talk, um, uh, it's not uncommon for me, in my experience, to start to feel some anxiety and fear <clears throat> when uh, I'm going to come in here and give a talk. It on- but I, honestly, it's so much, I, I really like it. I like looking out and seeing all these faces. It's really cool. <laughs> it's always been such a strange thing on, on Zoom, either seeing squares or just seeing my face. So it's nice knowing that everybody is out there and it is also really nice to look up and see all these faces staring at me. (laughs) But as I said, it's not uncommon for me to uh, feel some anxiety and a little fear going in uh, leading up to a Dharma talk. And um, I remember on my very first retreat with the Village Zendo, which was in 2005, uh, I think it was the last talk that Anki Oroshi gave. She spoke about <coughs> these, uh, she listed these bodhisattva fears. <coughs> and one of the fears that was at the top was the bodhisattva fear of addressing the assembly. <laughs> so that's a little bit what's going on, what's going on. But I thought I'd look at it a little deeper. So uh, Dogen Zenji, uh, in his Actualizing the Fundamental Point, writes, um, when, when Dharma does not fill your body and mind, you, you may assume it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand something is missing. For example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and view in all directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It, is, it only looks circular as far as you can see it at that time. All things are like this. So in the spirit of that, I decided to try to look beneath my fear and anxiety. So looking at my fear and anxiety the same way that Dogen was looking at the ocean, 
It might appear as something on the surface, but as we look underneath it, we might start to find some more things. So, um, on a real base level, I could say that I'm afraid of opening my mouth, uh, and that when I speak, I'm going to reveal what a phony I am, uh, how full of it I am, and that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I guess you could say I'm afraid that I don't know and will feel humiliated for not knowing anything. And that reminds me of um, years ago I used to uh, teach at a summer camp, a summer music camp, and um, we would have students high school and younger. And uh, in particular this one uh, kid, this one summer, um, he had this phrase that he would always say anytime any of me or any of the other teachers tried to teach him anything, he'd say, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 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 I know. Be like, well, it's really important that you do this. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. And then you'd hear that he wasn't doing it. But <clears throat> there was this something in him that felt like he had to always show us that he knew, right? I think that we all maybe have a little bit of that kid in us or did at some point. I know that I did. Um, and, the other, and the other thing it made me think of was, uh, was social media. Um, so many times when uh, I look at a thread, uh, some interesting conversations that start on social media, <clears throat> how many times you see, you see the phrase, you obviously know nothing, <laughs> or you're stupid and don't know what you're talking about, etc., etc. So, um, when you consider that, uh, I think it's no wonder that people will be stubborn sometimes and find a way around admitting that they don't know something. Maybe, maybe we've all done that at some point. Um, <clears throat> the consequences on a subtle inner place seem too dire. Even as we look at this with rational mind and understand there's no shame in not knowing something, something deeper below the surface doesn't quite trust that. So on a very subtle level, almost imperceivable, I could say that I'm afraid that I don't know anything and I feel shame about that. But uh, let's examine a little bit, what, what does it mean to know? What, is, what does that mean? What does to know mean? Um, and I thought I'd, I'd uh, give two examples. Uh, the first from a koan and the second from uh, some of my life's experiences. So the first one is a, f a famous koan that maybe some of you know. Um, and uh, it's in two parts and I'm just going to speak about the first part. And it's uh, called Deshaun Meets the Tea Lady. So, excuse me. So, throughout northern China, there was a famous scholar and expert on the Diamond Sutra, and his name was Deshan, and he would travel to monasteries to speak about the Diamond Sutra. Um, talk had spread about the heretical masters of the South who were speaking of a transmission, quote, mind to mind, outside of scripture, 
not relying on letters. In disgust in hearing this, Deshaun packed all his notes and commentaries in a cart and headed south. Arriving in the south, he stopped at a tea house at the foot of a mountain and uh, wanted to have a little snack before he continued. And he was intrigued by the confidence of an old tea woman as she approached his table. He ordered some tea cookies and the woman noticed his cart loaded with the texts, commentaries, and notes. What have you got there, she asked. That's my life's work, my commentaries and notes on the Diamond Sutra, the sum of my vast knowledge. I am the king of the Diamond Sutra. Is that so, she said. Well, I have a question for you. If you answer it, I'll give you the tea cakes for free. If you can't, you get nothing. Deshaun agreed. So she says, like it says in your sutra, past mind cannot be realized, present mind cannot be realized, future mind cannot be, cannot be realized. Which mind is it that you want to realize? Deshaun couldn't speak. Nothing he, had, nothing he knew or had read or heard could help him with this question. Upon realizing this, he asked the woman if there was a teacher nearby that could help him, <clears throat> and uh, he went to call on that teacher. Um, <clears throat> so in this story, it seems like there was something that he knew he didn't know. <laughs> when, she, when she asked him this question, he couldn't answer it. Even, even having all that, all that cart filled with all those notes of all the knowledge that he had attained of studying the sutra. So there was something that he knew he didn't know. What was that? I'd like to use a, a, an example from my life of some musicians that I know. And uh, I'd say a handful of musicians that I've met in my lifetime that have this quality. That... Um, they uh, are exceptional, exceptional players, and uh, obviously worked very hard to reach the level that they are at. Um, and they play very advanced, very advanced music, very advanced harmonic music, very advanced rhythmic music, music that you don't just have uh, a talent for and hear and play. There was obviously a lot of study and practice that went into it. Yet, these, these uh, handful of people that I could think of, they could never, they, uh, they can't uh, explain to you what they're doing. They can't tell you why they're playing these certain notes over this chord progression, why they're playing these certain notes over this harmony. Um, they can't tell you in words what it is, but they do it. They really do it. That's like they, I'm, these are some people that I'm thinking about, they're at like the top, top of their game. Um, so in one sense, you could say they don't know what they're doing. I, I had a, one student like that exactly. He didn't, he didn't know what he was doing, but you would put anything in front of him and he could play it. It was remarkable. 
but he could just never explain it in words, right? So it's a, it's a kind of deeper sense or a different sense of knowing. And uh, I think I, uh, for the rest of this talk, I'll, I'll kind of distinguish those two types of knowing as one being body wisdom and one being mind knowing. Right, so this body wisdom, I feel, is something that's uh, <clears throat> something that's uh, beyond what our minds can know or comprehend. And uh, the body wisdom, I think, is very difficult in in our society these days because so much stress and weight is put on mind knowing. Uh, just like in these earlier examples of the yeah, I know, kid, and um, what we see on social media all the time, right? So, uh, so body wisdom, how do we cultivate body wisdom and how do we kind of awaken our own body wisdom? First of all, I think that zazen is a, is a wonderful way to, to uh, bring this about, to practice this, um, which can bring uh, mindfulness into our daily actions and uh, loosen up our inner scope, our inner vision. And uh, for me, what that started to bring was a curiosity. So it's kind of like going beyond that and the loosening up, able to kind of see wider. Um, allowed me to see more, th see, start to see things more clearly on the inside and also um, have a curiosity for what was there. Um, I believe that when we're able to enter this body wisdom, enter the just inherent wisdom that we, ha that we all have, um, we're, we're better equipped and better able to face what's actually going on once we start looking in there. We're able to see who we really are without any kind of idealized sense of self. Just an honest reflection of what actually is there, as opposed to what we think we ought to be. Body wisdom doesn't compare oneself to others, but sees how we fit into the scheme of things. Mind-knowing constantly compares ourselves with others and sizes us up against everyone. And uh, we know the danger that that, that, that can create. <clears throat> but uh, after living in mind knowing for so long, which I think after a certain point, we all kind of let the weight fall on that side. We kind of let our mind run the show. And the mind knowing part is what steers, steers our lives. So uh, it takes time to just to get through and uh, touch our body wisdom and uh, slowly peel back the layers of the onion that we discover in there. You don't, uh, you don't just tune in to this body wisdom and all of a sudden everything is there and we're able to see ourselves clearly. It's a, it's a slow process. Um, and as we peel back the layers of the onion, there might be some things that uh, surprise us uh, and there might be some 
uncomfortable things there as well. And for me, uh, as these truths, truths were revealed to me as to who I really was and uh, what my life had been, what my, the history of my life was, I, I had to navigate some what seemed like oceans of regret and then anger. And it took a lot of time, you know. For me, it took a lot of journaling. It took a lot of uh, sitting. It took a lot of just uh, contemplation. And uh, and just uh, over time, it just it kind of seemed to dissipate quite a, quite a bit. And what was waiting on the other side of that was shame. It was like I needed to get through all that to face this shame. And in my experience and from looking back, I think uh, shame is an extremely powerful emotion. It's one that uh, <clears throat> can really take charge of us and really strongly will not allow us to show it. You know, I think as children, um, it's, it's almost as, uh, seems as dire as death in a way. And we can't in, under any circumstance, show our shame. Um, but just with anger or any other difficult emotion to face, the more we spend time with it and touch it gently without trying to get rid of it or control it or understand it, uh, for me, what I found on the other side was more forgiveness for myself and for others, for others in my life that maybe I had a lot of anger towards. <clears throat> and so it was funny, like before that, I wasn't able to, understood what forgiveness was, <laughs> but I wasn't able to actually open my heart to it until I went through those <clears throat> oceans of anger and uh, regret. And uh, it's a very humbling experience. Um, and I think through that humbling, for me, was how I was able to start to feel okay with not knowing anything or feeling like I don't know anything. Uh, I, I saw this clip recently of Joseph Campbell and um, he said this, which uh, popped up for me. He said, people say that we're seeking, that we're all seeking meaning for life. But I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we are seeking is, is an experience of being alive. So that this life experience we have on the pure physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being in reality. And so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. The mind has to do with meaning. But in here, what is the meaning of a flower? And then he actually mentions the, the the story of the Buddha giving a sermon on a hill when he picks up a flower 
and he just picks up a flower and twirls it in his hand. And Kashyapa sees this and smiles, and he, transmit, he transmitted this teaching in silence through the meaning of a flower. Was that something that Kashyapa grasped in his mind? Was that something that he understood on a cognitive level? I think we all know that experience when we uh, know something in our bodies or in our hearts, <clears throat> um, how full that feels as opposed to having some kind of cognitive understanding. When we know something deep down inside, we know it. We might not be able to explain it, we might not be able to say it in words, but we know it. So, um, I think this, what this leads to, and uh, I think what, what it is that I'm, I've always been looking for is uh, being comfortable in my own skin, being comfortable in, in our own skin. Uh, another word that I like to use very often is embody. <clears throat> a lot of times when I perform, I've been noticing this a lot lately. For those of you that don't know me, um, this, is the, this, is, uh, this is my... Uh, forgetting because it's been so long since I did this. I didn't tell you my name. My name is Tokuyu. <laughs> and um, uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm also a musician in, in, uh, in, my, outer, <clears throat> in my other life. And I'm um, a jazz piano player. And uh, so uh, a lot of what I deal with is uh, improvisatory. And so in an improvisational setting in music, um, I think uh, we're always kind of exploring and looking for this kind of uh, body wisdom type of uh, knowing when, when I play music. Because as an improviser, the beat is just going by and the music is going by like this, so you don't have time to think about it. You only have time <coughs> to feel it. <coughs> Excuse me. to feel it and react. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and what I found is that when I'm <clears throat> not satisfied with my performance, <clears throat> it always has to do with <clears throat> whether or not uh, I'm embodying the experience. <clears throat> I am definitely influenced by the applause and by the uh, <clears throat> reaction of an audience. But, <clears throat> If, I'm, if, I haven't been in, if I haven't felt that I've embodied the experience, then uh, even if the audience is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, very, very praiseful, I don't feel it as much. <clears throat> and if I do feel like I am embodying the performance, even if the audience is silent, it doesn't bother me. On the surface, just like Dogen's Ocean, those applause would, would uh, and the audience reaction would be my immediate sense of how, of, how the, uh, <clears throat> of how the performance was going. But upon reflection and upon looking deeper, looking into the ocean, I was able to see that it was embodying, uh, being in the flow of the moment. That was always the most important thing for me. Um, 
And that had to do with connecting with my body wisdom. And I feel that a lot of times our body wisdom and our mind knowledge butt heads. They don't, uh, well at least the mind knowing most of the time doesn't want to give up its control and let the body wisdom steer the, steer the ship. So, um, and what I think a result of this is uh, that we can hold confidence and vulnerability at the same time. That our vulnerability doesn't dissuade our confidence. And our confidence doesn't prevent us from feeling our vulnerability. <clears throat> I've had the, uh, the immense uh, pleasure of working this year, <clears throat> this past year, with uh, someone named Nikki Giovanni. I'm not sure if anyone has ever heard of her, but she, was, uh, she is uh, uh, a poet, a very important poet, who was uh, very vocal and popular during the civil rights movement in the 60s. And she wrote some very uh, influential poems at that time. And uh, she has uh, a huge following. And <clears throat> there was a recording that I did with this band, and the band leader did a collaboration with Nikki. And so I've been lucky to have done some tours with her this, this past year. And I've got to do some concerts with her and experience just being around her. <clears throat> and uh, if you don't know who she is, um, she's, she's this tiny, tiny woman. She's about five feet tall. She's this very small uh, frame. Um, but she is one of the most powerful people <laughs> I've, ever, I've ever experienced in my life. Um, when she, you know, we usually, she, she sings with us. She sings with, with the band, but she's not a singer. You know, people, lots of people come out, they want to hear her poems. So we'll usually play a couple songs without her, and then we'll bring her out, and she comes out, and when she gets in front of that microphone, she just holds court, and she just goes. There's nothing planned. She just goes. She riffs. Sometimes she recites one of her poems, but she just goes, and she preaches, and she... Um, it's, it's, it's incredible, and, it, and it's, it's not only then. There was, uh, we played at the, um, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and when I, I remember when I arrived, I walked into the backstage area, and um, you know, there was a, in, the back, in the back, back of the backstage, there was a little room where you can get some snacks and some refreshments for the artists, and there was a table there where you could sit, and I walked, in, walked back there, and, and she was sitting at this table with like another seven or eight people, and she was speaking the same way that she does on stage. She was just holding court. She was like t talking about what's wrong with the with the country and what's wrong with the world. And it was just it's just incredible to see. She's uh, just a, a real a force of nature. And if if you haven't ever checked her out, I would uh, I would recommend uh, uh, looking up some of her poems. They're really strong. <clears throat> but the really interesting thing um, was. Uh, how vulnerable she got when it was time to sing. It was like singing wasn't what she was super comfortable with. So I wouldn't say that she shrunk because she never did. She was always, she always held that large persona and power. But she, she also didn't hide her vulnerability. 
she would come out and she would, like I said, hold court and, and, um, and uh, have everybody there on the edge of their seats. And then she'd go to sing a song and she'd be kind of a little, like, shy and she, she'd always defer to the band and make sure that she was doing things right. It was really, it was really um, a great, it's, it's really been a great teaching to be able to, uh, to be around her and, and to witness that and to see how someone can uh, hold that confidence and hold uh, the uh, essence of who they are, always staying in touch with who she is. She never forgets who Nikki Giovanni is. <clears throat> and at the same time, allow that person to be vulnerable. And uh, not see, and you know, there was no shame in her vulnerability. There was no, maybe there was a little fear but there was no shame. She was able to hold that power and to also be vulnerable. And it's a great lesson. And so I would like to end with uh, a poem of hers. It's a little bit long, but I feel like in a sense this poem, this poem kind of sums up this t Dharma talk way better than everything that I've already said. So this is by Nikki Giovanni and it's called Ego Trippin. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne, drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert with a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle so swift, so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son Noah built Newark, Newark, and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intone my loving name, all praises, all praises. I am the one who would save. I sowed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels delivered uranium. The fillings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I'm so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal. I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. 
I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. So, that's the end of the talk. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here tonight, and uh, have a wonderful evening. Mm -hmm.